Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. This should be interesting. Um, it's a very interesting topic. I love the teaching series we're doing. It's so simple, Gospel of Grace. And we started on a very big, solid foundation that we are anchored by God's abundance grace. And now we're going into a very interesting teaching. It's almost uh, uh, terroristic in nature uh, because of the title. It's called ISIS. That's the teaching of today, ISIS. And no, I'm not doing a documentary series about this group of people that are radicalists. And I'm not doing that. It's simply a way to summarize a very interesting concept that would emerge from a topic like what we're doing, the grace and the salvation of God. All right. So ISIS simply means initially saved. You've seen the posters, initially saved, infinitely saved. And there's a question mark there because we, want to, we actually want to answer this question. If you're initially saved, are you infinitely <clears throat> saved? Praise the name of Jesus. One way I'm going to start is by letting us know that, first of all, this topic is not difficult to understand. I want to just, I want to just let you settle in, right? This topic is not at all difficult to understand. And I know many of you have wrestled with questions about salvation. You've asked questions in different formats. It could be, does it mean that now that I'm in, that's how it is forever? What happens when the trumpet sounds and I'm found on the bed of adultery? You know, people ask all sorts of questions. But I can tell you, if you are committed, as we are here at Vivify, to the text of Scripture, the integrity of the Word of God, you are in good hands. Like, you don't have to do gymnastics to arrive at the answer. It's clear as day. And one thing I, would, I want you to expect in this teaching is a plethora and a multitude of Scriptures. If you don't have your Bibles, you are wrong. You need to get your Bible so you can follow through and write down everything that is being said. We're going to open all scriptures. And at the end of the day, what I'll do is I'll just pose the question back to you. And you make your conclusion from everything that we've talked about, about this topic. And one thing I'll also say is we need to be careful not to use certain concepts and terminologies that Paul, the apostle, and the other apostles of God, or Jesus, our Lord himself, never used. We need to be careful the, the concept of once saved, always saved is something that people some, came up with, summarized, and, and used. And somehow, I understand what they're trying to do with it. It summarizes a concept, but somehow it can be misconstrued very easily. That, of course, there are other things that come up in, you know, that are not found in scriptures that human beings, we ourselves, come up with to summarize things like the Holy Trinity, which is not in the Bible. But we use it to, to explain the Trinity. The Bible is not in the Bible. <laughs> And the word rapture is not in the Bible, but we use all these terms to, <clears throat> to explain certain concepts. And I'm going to talk about that word rapture even as we go further, because some of these context, context and concepts, if they're not rightly explained, can be very misleading. Praise the name of Jesus if you believe what I just said. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what I want to do is start here. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. It's a very good place to start. The book of Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 21. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise 
praise the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there's, there's a, a book that a man called Ray Comfort, uh, a televangelist and also uh, a street evangelist in the United States who originally is from New Zealand. He goes around preaching to people and there's something he discovered and he wrote a book about it. The title of the book is Hell's Best Kept Secret. Very interesting title, Hell's Best Kept Secret. And when I thought about it, I was like, why is this Hell's Best Kept Secret? And you're gonna find out why. There's something when he encountered people and interviewed people and asked people questions and preached the gospel to them, he identified a number of things. And that's what I want to show you here. Matthew chapter 7 from verse 21. Are you there? I hope you are. Let's get right into it. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me in the day, you know the scripture, don't you? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name we have cast out devils. And in your name we have done many wonderful works. Verse 23, and then will I profess to them. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers. Of iniquity, you that work iniquity. Very interesting scripture, and and this is one that has been very, very misconceived, uh, vastly misconceived in the body of Christ. Many people use this scripture to talk about people who have lived a life of service in the church, people who have been great men of God, and all of that. But you know, privately they're doing bad things in secret, or they make mistakes here and there. By the time they come to heaven's gate, you know, they're once strong believers, and God will look at them. Hmm, you have messed up. Depart from me. Get out of my sight. I never knew you. You know, but contextually, and I'm going to help you see that. I'm getting somewhere with this. Contextually, you'll find out that what the scripture was actually referring to was not believers in the faith. It was not people who were born again. Look at verse 15. Let's, let's check the context. Go back uh, a few verses. Verse 15. Look at what it says. It says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. So there is a deception here. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raven in wolves. This is where the concept of wolves in sheep's clothing comes from. Verse 16, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree will bring forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruits. Verse 18, a good tree... Look at this. Cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Verse 20. Wherefore by their fruits you shall what? You shall know them. You shall identify them. You shall recognize them by their fruits. So the charge here that Jesus was saying was, look, beware of false prophets. False prophets have an appearance of looking right. And look at this. Look at these guys. Do you know what I realized when I read the scripture? These guys were having a final attempt at their false prophecy. They were maybe, as they deceived many people on the earth, now before God, they want to do a final attempt of deception. To say, no, no, look, we, we've, we've cast out devils in your name. Look, we, we, we've done this in your name. Uh-uh. You should give us some credit. 
And, and God said, no, I never knew. That's not the language that Jesus would use for someone he, he knew and gave his life for. If there was relationship, that was not what he would say. He said, I never even knew you in the first place. That's not the language that God would use to a believer, someone who had relationship with him. It's to false preachers. But as much as this is for false preachers, I'm telling you that hell's best kept secret is false conversions. False conversions. There are people who you see day to day, people who go to church and have the appearance of being saved and are truly not being saved. They're truly not saved. Truly not saved. And the sad reality of this, the reason why this is very interesting is that, I'll say this again, we don't have a salvometer. We don't have a soteriometer or soterio, what what can I, I mean, we we, we don't have these devices that we can use to say, okay, you know what, everybody line up, line up, if you fire us, line up, let's check, all of you that have been attending our meetings, let's be sure that... uh, you are in the same. Let's let's know we're in the same page and we're going to the same place. Oh yeah, stand in the line. Beep, 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 beep. Ah, ah, good. Confirm. Your own is even. You just finished pasting. I'll be very good. Your own is good. Beep, 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 beep. Ah, my brother. Sorry. Eh? And then you use that device to identify whether you're saved or not. We don't have that. But the acid test that we see from the scriptures here in this verse is that by their fruit you will know. You will know by their fruits, by their works, by the things they do. You will know. And funny enough, the sad part is that there are people that think they are saved and they're not. And that that one is even the worst. The false prophets, they know they're not. They're out to get people. They're out to take people out of the church. They're there to deceive. They're there to contradict. They're there to uproot what has been installed by the preaching of the gospel. But there are people who genuinely think they are saved, and they are not. And that is even by far the worst thing and the worst situation anyone can ever be in. And I'll give you a scriptural example. Look at Romans chapter 10. Open your Bibles with me. Romans chapter 10 from verse 2 to 3. Oh, this is crazy. Romans chapter 10 from verse 2 to 3. This is what he says. For I bear them witness. And this is Paul speaking about his countrymen, the Jewish people. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They are passionate. They are driven to do the things of God, but not according to knowledge. And I think we read this last week. They are not doing it according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So he's talking about a bunch of people who think by the laws of Moses and abiding to the traditional precepts that they've been handed down to from generation to generation, that if abiding to these things 100% uh, will get them saved, then it will get them saved. That this is the thing that makes them righteous before God. And Paul starts to talk, you know, he uses the example of Abraham and David, like we looked last week, that it was simply by their faith that they were counted as righteous. So you can have people who are actually actively pursuing God, chasing God. But at the end of the day, they've been chasing lies. Paul himself was a direct example, and that's why this hits home. He was literally the persecutor of the early church. He was. He was the one going to Damascus to do more damage to the Christian faith than anyone else in that time. 
before God arrested him. He was doing it and he did it because he thought he was defending the faith. Do you realize that? There are people who are doing activity thinking that that's what true spirituality is and it's not. Hell's best kept secrets. There are people you are, you are and, and this was what he, he found out, this man called Ray Comfort. He would reach people and ask them, are you born again? You say, yes, I'm born again. Okay, but you are in a gay pride parade. Uh, are you lesbian? Yes, I'm lesbian. But God loves me anyways. Uh, do you have premarital sex? Yes. Do you drink and do drugs? Yes. But I'm still Christian anyways, and God loves me the way I am. That is hell's best kept secrets. <laughs> I've watched a couple of interviews, and I'm just mesmerized. How do these people think? And it's the deception of the enemy to think that you can create a God you know, in your own image. There was a pastor that I, I, I remember looking at uh, on an interview on YouTube, and someone was interviewing him, uh, and, was, and this man identifies as a gay pastor. And they interviewed him and said, why do you think it's right for you to be a gay pastor? It's like, well, you see, at the end of the day, we are, you know, we are just uh, people who God loves, and, you know, whoever God is to you, that's who you are to God. You know, and you see, if God made me like this, I can't argue with him. It's God. He knows what he was doing. And this is God. And, and people just have this idea. And this guy has been pastoring a church for 13 years. He had been gay for 15 years, according, or always been gay, according to him. And these are people that in their own way think they're actually saved. Anyways, my, my, my goal is not just to call out people but to identify a problem that many times when we talk about the concept of once saved, always saved, an underlying factor is understanding what true conversion actually looks like, what true salvation actually looks like. And of course, there's, there is a difference between restoration, a need for restoration, and reprobation, right? So there are people who, on their own, have chosen, I want nothing to do with this thing, this thing called faith in Jesus. I want out. I'm not doing this. And they walk away and truly decide, and God gives them over to that uh, resistance, that, you know, God resists the proud, as the Bible says. And they go away in their rebellion. But their people, I was about to say jumbellion for some reason, they go away in their jumbellion. It just sounds like, you know, it rhymes. Okay, let me focus. But at the end of the day, there are people who also say that same thing, but they're just... They're not lost. They're just losing their way. And there's a difference. All right? There's some people that Galatians 6, you know, talks about, Paul talks about that in Galatians 6 verse 1, where those who are more spiritual should restore those who are overtaken in a fault. And that's why, and maybe some of you can relate to this, that there are people that you know were once fervent, were once strong, and after a period of time, they get cold. They get caught up with the wrong association. They start hearing all sorts of fallacies and, and falsehood and start to believe those things and wander away and become isolated from the church. But that doesn't mean that, oh, these ones have lost their way. They are gone. They are damned. They are condemned. It's a call to first restore. And I think that's always our first approach anytime. We don't have a salvometer now. We can't say this person is lost. You only find out truly if they're lost. If you approach, you try to restore consecutively and patiently, and they never truly come to faith, then you know that this is someone who has made up their mind that they want nothing to do about this. They're reprobate. Do you understand? So there's a difference between those two. Just wanted to make it a clarification there. So let me just help us unpack this. Look, I, I know you want the answer right away. Pastor Ken, just, just tell me the answer. All this 
you know, semantics. I'm not interested, but this is how you have robust understanding of what we're talking about. So just stay with me, okay? Now let me talk to you about what salvation does not look like. That's what I want to start with. What salvation does not look like. And right after, we'll talk about what salvation looks like. It's beautiful. This is going to bless you. Number one, number one, salvation is not church attendance. Ah, this will save you. This will save you. This will save you on that relationship that you're about to enter with that, with that church goer. Mm. Just because you are a church goer does not mean you are a church member. Okay. Do you understand what I just said? If you are a member of the church, of the church of God in this world, it means you are truly saved. But you can go to church and not be an actual member of church. Yes, you might be registered in a church building or a group of people, but your name is not registered in the books of heaven. That is very possible. So salvation, when someone tells me, if I ask you, are you a Christian? And you say yes, and that's how you find out what people really believe many times. I'm not saying that everyone who has a, you know, an incomplete understanding of the gospel and salvation is not truly saved. That's not what I'm saying. There are people who would need to learn more. They just knew the barest minimum to be saved, that Jesus died for them, and that's enough. But there are people who think that they are saved only because they come to church. Do you understand? So when you ask someone, are you a Christian? They say, yes. Why are you a Christian? <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> See where we are. We're not in church. See, look at I came to church. I know. I could have been drinking and doing what other people are doing. I came to church on Sunday. Come on, cut me some slack. That does not move me, and that does not move God. Coming to church does not necessarily mean that you are saved. Number two, salvation is not serving God. Salvation is not serving God. And I explained this last week, that if anything, salvation is God's service to you and receiving that service that God did on the cross of Calvary for your sins. That is what salvation is. But not by saying, you know what, I want to touch God's heart. I want to receive this salvation. So I'll sign up for five service units. I will do this. I will do that. In fact, I'll become a leader in the church. And do you know, and, and this one even hurts me the most, that there are church leaders or pastors or bishops or people in the church community that are not saved. They are not saved. They truly haven't believed the gospel. Some enter, and someone who came out uh, a couple of years ago and said the reason he did this pastor thing was because he wanted money, that this was a good business. There are people like that. These are some false teachers, false prophets coming into the church to extort people. Just because you are a church leader or have a church position or a title does not mean that you are saved. Number three, salvation is not philanthropy. Salvation is not philanthropy. I remember having a conversation with someone and... I asked, look, do you think you're a good person? The person said, yes, I'm a good person. I said, why? I said, well, you know, I, I, I do very good things for people. I, for just recently, I gave one guy on the street who was, you know, a crippled man. I gave him some money free of charge. And I partner with this foundation. I do this. I do that. And I was honestly impressed. I will not lie. I heard this guy say it. I was honestly impressed. And I said, do you think that the good works you've done, I said, that's good, very commendable, but do you think that the good works that you've done in this sense can take away all the bad things you've done? And he's like, see, God is not a wicked person now. If I've done bad things, the good things will cover for it. It's not a just God. 
And this person did not even understand the fundamental principle of salvation, that there must be justice, that there must be a propitiation, a substitute for salvation. And, and this just reveals the heart that many people have. They're trying to balance the scales. And even beyond Christianity as a uh, cluster of people, you have other religions that believe if your good works can outweigh your bad, then you'll be saved. Something the, the Muslims very vehemently believe. But this is not what salvation is. This is not what it is. It's not philanthropy. It's not being morally good and doing nice things to people. That is not salvation. Number four, salvation is not by birth. <laughs> salvation is not by birth, but by new birth. Glory to God. Salvation is not by birth. It is by new birth. It is not hereditary. That's what I'm trying to say. Your father is a pastor. Your mother is a deaconess. Now you are a hybrid. You are a pastor deaconess. You think this is Vampire Diaries? That's because... Okay, anyways. <laughs> Let me not say it. This is not the case of you are this, you are that, combined. You know, it's not, no, that's not how salvation works. Even John the Baptist, John the Baptist that from his mother's womb was filled with the Spirit, still had to believe in the risen Christ, still had to believe in the promised Messiah to be saved. Do you realize that? <laughs> it's interesting. So just because you say, you know, you are from a Christian home does not make you Christian. This is not what salvation looks like. It's not just by, I am a Christian, I come from a Christian home, you fill the form, they, you are trying to create a bank account, they ask you what's your religion, you take Christian because your parents are Christian. That's not what makes you Christian. Yes, you can be a Muslim by being born, by in, that indoctrination. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Hindu just because your parents are a part of that. Almost like you can be Yoruba because your parents are Yoruba, you can be Igbo because your parents are Igbo. But... In terms of something that has eternal value, like salvation, it's not hereditary. It can, it's not transferable. Salvation is a personal decision. Salvation is something that happens. It's a personal experience. Praise the name of Jesus. You can only be born again, but you cannot be born born again. That's what I'm trying to say. Did you get what I said? You can be born again, but you cannot be born born again. Number five. This one is interesting. I just made it up. Salvation is not initial gra-gra. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the only way I could put it. Salvation is not initial gra-gra. It's not just in a look that ah, I'm fervent for the Lord. I've started well. I'm good. And we're going to talk about this even more. Salvation endures. It endures. It's not just at the beginning that you start. There's something about salvation that holds, that preserves. A way I put it, you know, the Lord revealed this to me to, in, when I was trying to understand the concept of faith. It says, as much as you hold on to your faith and hold on to faith, faith holds on to you. That's the relationship within us and faith. You truly believe and, and your faith holds on to you, carries you. It's not initial gra-gra. You start well, but you don't finish. That's not salvation. So now let me take us to what salvation looks like. And I want to just help you remind you of who a believer is. I'm going to do those two things. I'm going to show you who a believer is. I'm going to walk us through the, the stages of salvation. When I do this, it will be clear as day to you what this topic actually means. Because at the end of the day, the title is Initially Saved, 
infinitely saved. I'm going to walk us through those stages of salvation so you understand what each one entails and we can finally answer the big question of the day. But let me start here. Who is a believer? Who is a believer? Number one, the believer is one saved by grace alone through faith. So this is what I want to establish to you what true salvation looks like. The believer is one saved by grace alone through faith. And I have scriptural references for everyone, giving you free of charge. Amen. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. If you know this by heart, recite this with me. You, you know, it says, By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift of God. I think I mixed it too. Uh, <laughs> that not of yourselves is what I wanted to say. Let's go again. I'm sorry. Let's go again. But by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8 to 9. And what the scripture says, look, you are saved by God's unmerited favor, not by your works. It is God's unmerited favor through your belief and your trust in him. You are saved by that. It's not about you. It's not about anything that you've done. And I give an example. I actually have a book that I've, I released, and I'm going to release it sometime soon in the near future, about this concept of, it's a bit uh, hot here, maybe we can just uh, change the atmosphere, glory to God. <laughs> so, uh, in, initially, um, I, I wrote this book called Isis, literally, that's the book, uh, that's what it's called, and there's an example I used in this book, you know, it's a concept of, imagine there are two sailors going on a, on a journey in a boat, and they're going, just two of them, the boat is nice and calm, and all of a sudden there are boisterous winds, you know, taking and tossing this boat to and fro. This guy's about to die, and just one guy, you know, about to tip over, and actually does, falls into the water, and then the other guy comes in. You know, maybe his name, let's give them names. This is Tunde, of course. There has to be Tunde. Tunde is the one that fell into the water. He's always the one that falls into the water. Tunde falls into the water, and Benjamin is the one who is in the boat. And Benjamin reaches out to this guy, and this guy is about to drown, and reaches out to him and pulls him. Come, I'll save you. No! And then enters into the boat, and they're happy, and they're glad, and somehow the storm subsides. And people who have heard these guys who are going to travail, Thank you very much. People who were going to see these guys, um, you know, explore a new land. Maybe they knew they were on this journey. They come to interview them. Interviewers come. Hey, Benjamin, Tunde, please tell us how, what happened. We heard you were going to explore that un, un, uncharted land, and then you fell into the water. Tell us what happened. We heard that, it, that Tunde entered the water. Tell us the story. There are two sides. There are two ways to tell the story. If I were Tunde... You know, and I had a legalistic mindset. The mindset where good works count as righteousness. I'll say, uh, well, come on. Uh, come on. Look at me. Look at my biceps. Just look at that. You know, when, when I fell over, you know, it was just, just a moment of, you know, just distracted. And I fell over. And, uh, you know, this guy, my, my partner just grabbed over me. And I, you know, I grabbed his hand. And I pulled myself. Look at, my, look at it now. I pulled myself up, Wah, entered the boat, landed, Bwah. come on, come on, you know. I, I, I mean, I don't like to talk too much, so highly of myself. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I pulled myself into the boat and, you know, I'm good, I'm all right. That's one perspective. And if, if, if you have the perspective that you are saved by grace through faith, this is how you will sound. 
Look, oh my goodness, I would have been lost. I would have been dead, drowned at the bottom of the sea if this guy hadn't shown up. Bro, thank you, thank you so much. If he hadn't shown up for me, do you know where I would have been? I would have been dead, but he reached out to me and he pulled me into the boat and now I am saved. I am eternally grateful to this guy. Thank you, thank you. I couldn't have done it without him. That is someone who understands grace. You are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. Number two, the believer is a miracle of changed desires. Number two, who is a believer? The believer is a miracle of changed desires desires and I know many of you can understand what I just said it hits you as I've just said it to you it's a miracle that you are doing what you're doing right now that on a Sunday like this there's a compulsion within you to want to know God to want to get the answers to questions a burning desire to grow in your knowledge of him this is not ordinary some of you there are things that you love to do that you know were wrong and somehow you got uncomfortable somehow those things were disgusting to you you couldn't even think and and remember yourself doing those things and it, it blew your mind this was me what You've seen that you were some way, and now because of him, you are this way. That is a miracle of change desires. Ezekiel chapter 36, from verse 26 to 27. We're going to read the scripture another time in this teaching, but I want you to open here and check it out with me. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. This is what it says. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. This is, this is not upgrade, though. This is not I'm updating your OS. This is I am replacing it. I'm giving you a new mechanism, a new regulator, a new internal operating system. I will give you a new heart because the one you had was bad. I'll put a new spirit within you. And that's the heart he was talking about. I'll put in you a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a soft heart. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is powerful. The believer is a miracle of change. If you see someone that had a lifestyle before and is still living a certain lifestyle, a terrible, sinful lifestyle, no change, no remorse, no resentment, you have every reason and every credence to say, look, you've not experienced salvation because by their fruits you shall know them. Number three, the believer is the dwelling place of God's spirit. The believer is the dwelling place of God's spirit. When, when you believed in God, God decided to do a homecoming. He decided to move in, you know, in you by his spirit. This was the promise of Jesus where he says, I'll be with you till the close of age. I can imagine the disciples hearing that, oh, he's going to be with us. Guys, he's going to be with us. Yes, I said it. Yes, yes, Jesus, let's do this. And then soon after I said, okay, guys, <laughs> peace. And he ascends. You know, they would have been wondering, but did you not just say you'll be with us? This guy just lied to us. But he was, he was reminding them of what he had told them earlier, that I will send to you another comforter, someone who would stand in my place, who is equally God, who will dwell inside of you, live within you. This is the spirit that Ezekiel prophesied about, that would replace your desires, change your desires, and be with you and in you. 
So the Lord moves in, and I'm going to use the scripture of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. You can also see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse chapter 3, verse 16. Just remember John 3, 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You're going to see that there, all right? And this is what it says. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That is who a believer is. The believer is the address of God. The believer is, the, if I use the word, the shrine of God, the temple of God, the abode of God, the physical dwelling place that God has chosen to inhabit. And that is the very truth. Number four, the believer is dead. Romans chapter 6, from verse 6 to 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. The solution to getting rid of sin's hold is that you must die. You have to die to its effect, die to its hold. You were dead, but now you have to die. <laughs> that is the irony and paradox of Christianity. You were dead in your transgressions, but God made you alive in Christ, but also dead to sin. All right, and that's what the scripture is saying. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. That's the point. If someone dies, imagine you are bound, you had a lot of legal contracts. You had a marriage contract, you had a will, you had all of this, and, and other contracts that are legally, legally binding. Once the person dies, guess what? He's free of all those laws. He's free of all those. He's not tied to them anymore because he's dead. And that's the point where sin had signed its claim upon you. you that legal hold on you. When you died, all of that was cut off. That's the, the biblical symbolism of being dead to sin. So the believer is dead. Say, I am dead. <laughs> Say, I am dead <laughs> to sin. <laughs> that's very important. <laughs> Hallelujah. Number five, the believer is God's workmanship. I love this. And this is where I'm, I'm gearing to a very strong, uh, very strong direction. The believer is God's workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 10, just after verse 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, that tells us we are saved by grace through faith. It then tells us the, the, that is the reality, but now it tells us the responsibility that comes with it. It says, for we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. We, we are his workmanship, his handiwork, his, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is powerful. Another scripture, 1 John 3, verse 8 to 9, says something powerful. And I believe that this is a true litmus test for the believer. If you want to know a person by their fruits, you can easily tell by this. So this is a very good litmus test. 1 John chapter 3, from verse 8 to 9, it says, The one who does what is sinful, does, so action, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to actually destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue in sin. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is an acid test. And I, 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 we've gone through this series of 1 John before. A lot of it is an acid test for true salvation. I remember one time listening to a sermon about 1 John by this Reformed theologian. And by the time I was done, I was like, am I really saved? <laughs> It hits me deep, and I think that's similar to what Scripture tells us, to examine if we're still in the faith. 
But truly, it says if someone goes about sinning and sinning and sinning without repenting and just creates a lifestyle of sinfulness, it says you look like someone who has been sinning from the beginning, the devil. But you see, you are a direct contradiction to the work that Jesus came to do. The work Jesus came to do was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. So if you are doing the works of the devil, it really means that salvation has not been effected in you. That is the idea here. So the true believer is God's workmanship. You will bear fruits, good fruits. You will do good works. Number six, and this is the uh, penultimate one. The believer is a citizen of heaven. The believer is a citizen of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 from verse 20 to 21. Look, I, I wish to God that through the scriptures and all that we do in this teaching, it first corrects a lot of misconceptions, but also re- restores and instills a reassurance in your heart. A reassurance that you're not an orphan wandering about in this world. You have a father. You have a home. And maybe you really don't have a physical home in this world or a place to call your own. I want to reassure you that you have a place in God's family. Where Jesus said that he's going to make, you know, we have many, uh, many mansions in his father's house. In my father's house, there are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what he meant. He's, he went to prepare room in God's family for us. Look at this, Philippians chapter 3 from verse 20 to 21. Oh, this is so powerful. This is so powerful. Oh, this is so powerful. If you're using the King James, you'll see a word called conversation. That word conversation is, is uh, another way to, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a direct transliteration from the Greek, but this is what it actually means. If you look at easier translations, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, I know you're looking for that green, red, blue passport. You're looking to Jakba, you're looking to go to another country that you can call your own and be a part of that community. But I can tell you first and foremost, there is a citizenship you already have. There's a passport that is already within you. You have it. You are a citizen of heaven. Glory to God. It says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Powerful. It says we belong to God. That's home. We have our passports. We have entry. We have our visas by the Spirit of God because we've been adopted. All we are waiting for is our flights. Hallelujah. (laughs) And even if you are deported, guess what? You go back home. If deportation is death. You go back home. Glory to God. You are a sojourner on the earth, the Bible tells us. Number seven. The believer is sealed and kept by the power of God. I'm going to read about four scriptures to you to prove this. The believer is sealed. The true believer is sealed and kept by the power of God. That's what I was saying earlier. That as much as you hold on to faith, faith holds on to you. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 13 to 14. This is powerful, powerful. Blows my mind every time. It says, in him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth. The word of truth there means what? The gospel. And it says it in the next line. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also having believed, you were what? When you believed, you what? Were sealed 
with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. The, the, the idea of a seal is what you'd see in ancient times where a parcel or a letter was to be delivered from place to place and it had upon it a seal. If it was tampered with, there will be serious consequences. So it was meant to be transported from its, or, its origin to its final destination untampered with. That's what a seal does. In fact, the Roman seal that was upon Jesus' tomb, if it was tampered with, whoever was responsible will face a lot of, will face critical corporate Roman punishment. That's death. You'll be killed if they found out that you broke a Roman seal. That's how serious it was. It should not be tampered with. That's the point. And that concept, and he, you know, he's writing here, and he's using this concept to help them understand that, look, the Holy Spirit preserves you. That from this point of origin, you can be transported to your final destination untampered with blameless. Glory to Jesus. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, Jesus. This is powerful. Glory to God. Oh, <laughs> this is good. This is good stuff. And then it goes on to say, who is the guarantee? Another translation says the down payment. It's like you're, you are taking a loan. And you take a loan from the bank, but you can put a down payment saying, look, I'm putting this $25,000 to let you know that I'm going to pay that $75,000 that I borrowed. It's a down payment and a sort of guarantee to tell you, look, I'm going to pay everything else in full. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is our wedding ring or the engagement ring promising you of a marriage to come. Do you understand the picture? He says that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. We are God's purchased possession. We've been purchased of God, born of his spirit. Hallelujah. This is powerful to the praise of his glory. First John chapter 2 from verse 25. He says, and this is the promise that he made to us. Ah, this, this scripture is so short, so simple, but it's so powerful. This is the promise that God made to us. Eternal life. <laughs> Eternal life. You get to live forever. I think a lot of the times when we hear the words everlasting life, it becomes so common to our ears that we don't really understand what it does and how it works. It says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but what? But what? Have everlasting life. Do you realize that everlasting life lasts forever? It is everlasting powerful. It's a life where God keeps you. Hebrews chapter, I believe this is uh, Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 17 to 18. Thank you, Jesus. Is this Hebrews 1? I'm not sure of the chapter. Something is missing here. Let me just check it out. One moment. No, it's not Hebrews 1. That's interesting. It's missing. I'll, I'll come back to this. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember the chapter, but Hebrews verse 17 to 18. Uh, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. An oath. I beg your pardon. Sorry, I'm a bit hungry. I said oaths. Uh, <laughs> he guaranteed it with an oath 
So to, to show that, look, he doesn't change and his promises never change, he made an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is pos- impossible for God to lie. Look at that. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That God is unchanging in his character and that it is impossible for God to lie. We can bank and, and trust that all he had promised, even eternal life, will be ours. Do you see that? First Peter chapter 1 from verse 5. It says, you are being protected, you are being kept by God's power through faith. That's how you are kept, through your faith, like I said. Through your belief and trust in God, you are kept, you are held, you are preserved, you are protected for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Do you see this? So who is the believer? Can we go? The seven points. The believer is what? The one who is saved by grace through faith. Beautiful. Number two. The believer is a miracle of changed desires. Number three, the believer is what? The dwelling place of God's spirit. That's the temple of God. Number four, the believer is dead. Very good. Number five, the believer is God's workmanship. He, you know, he bears fruits. Number six, the believer is a citizen of heaven. And number seven, the believer is what? Sealed and kept by the power of God. If you are a believer and all these things I've said have resonated with you, can you shout a loud hallelujah? hallelujah? Glory to God. This is your life. This is your life now. You are that believer. And don't let the devil tell you otherwise. If you truly have faith in Jesus, this is you. Oh, faithful is he that promised. Glory to God. Now, let's go to the stages of salvation. I want to now walk you properly. Now you understand who a believer is. I want you to understand what that believer goes through in terms of salvation. And I've taught this severally, but I I want you to pay attention to the tenses that are being used in the stages of salvation. Number one, the very first stage, and I'm trying to rush because of time. The very first stage is this. We were saved. We were saved. And that's what we call initially saved. We were saved. Initially saved, right? We read Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8 to 9, which talked about how we were saved by grace through faith. The very first point of contact was when we believed. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10 says that if, you, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, 10 verse 9, and believe in your heart, thou shalt be saved. That's the initial point where you believe in your heart and you make proclamations of faith. You are saved. You know, Romans 3 talks about it and all, 3 verse 24, and all that are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All right, talks about that. Um, Romans 3, 25 uh, B, you know, if you go further, it says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to, so as to be the, so as to be just, and the one who what justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see it in Romans four, you know where Abraham was justified, um, not by works, but he was justified by his faith. It says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what righteousness. Titus three verse five, you know, not of any works of righteousness, but by his grace we have been saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing spirit of God. These, I, I can go on and on, but this talks about justification. That is this, the theological term. 
justification, where your sins are looked upon as numerous as they are, and legally God can dismiss them and say, because someone else has paid the price, has borne the penalty of your sin, I can legally dismiss your case. That is justification. It comes with forgiveness. It comes with being bought back, redemption. You are being justified. How? By faith. So that's the initial point of salvation, where you come to faith in the Lord Jesus. All right? The second stage is you are being saved. So the first one is you were saved. The next stage is you are being saved. That means you are gradually saved. So you are initially saved. Now you are gradually saved saved. And the, the theological term for this is sanctification. Sanctification. The initial one is, you can call it justification, you can call it redemption, you can call it propitiation, you can call it atonement, whatever you want to call it, but justification kind of hits it on the nail. But this is sanctification. This has to do with washing, setting apart. That's what the word sanctify means. I'm going to give you two scriptures. First Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 2. It says, and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Look at that. So it says you, if you truly believed, in, uh, truly believed, like not, and you didn't believe in vain, you would hold fast to the word that was preached. And you, you know, it talks about these people as being saved. An ongoing pro process, present continuous. At 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 18, it says, for the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly, which is foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So a vital part, you see, as, as being saved is that you are bearing fruits, is that you're starting to look like the one who saved you is that you are growing from infancy to maturity in Christ, is that you are being renewed in your mind and that the old baggage is truly dropping off. When you were saved initially, your spirit man was changed. You know, that scripture, that prophecy from Ezekiel is that you will take away that old heart, give you a new spirit. So your spirit nature changed. The nature of sin died away. The Adamic nature went away. But now there is need for this. Your soul needs help. Your mind needs renewing. You need to know what God wants for you and obey what God wants for you. That's the process of sanctification where you literally stand out from sin in terms of good works. So this is very critical and this is a step that we must not forget. Being saved. Being saved means that the person will continue. Continue in faith. That is the language of this continuing, enduring, holding fast the profession of your faith. That is this stage of salvation. This is the one that we so much diminish when we talk about salvation. But it's critical. It's critical. We don't have that device again, and I'm telling you, it will never be invented. We don't have a salvometer, but the proof that someone truly had faith in the very first instance is that they will continue somehow by the power of God and by their faith in him, that they will just continue. They will just continue. And there are many people we can look to now who we know their story. They believed in several decades. They are still in the faith. That is something that you can observe and see, look, this is someone who is being saved, who is truly undergoing sanctification. Number three. 
we will be saved. So we were saved. That is justification. We are being saved, which is sanctification. That is gradually saved. And then we will be saved. And this talks about infinitely saved, or you can call it eventually saved, or you can call it finally saved. And the theological term for this is glorification. Glorification, where the glory of God in his sons will be revealed. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures to talk about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 1. This is what it says. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. So he's using buildings and architecture to talk about our human body. If this house of this tabernacle, right, and the tabernacle was a temporary abode of God in the Old Testament before they built a temple. So if this old house, this earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. And you remember that's the language Jesus said. He said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, talking about his body. So we have a building of God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is not, and when you talk about a building of God, it's not talking about heaven, no. It's not talking about the space, the location called heaven. It's saying it's a house, it's a temple that is not made with human hands. It is eternal in heavens. Verse 2, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So he's talking about that moment where your body is transformed, where you, you take on immortality, where you, take, you leave this mortal body and take up an immortal body, a celestial spiritual body, and leave this physical body. Powerful. And to corroborate this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, talks about it as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 to 54. It says, in a moment, I love this scripture. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blinking of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There will be a transformation. It will actually happen. Look at this. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory that is the point where death is forever dead where we will die never to 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 die again do you understand we will come to life and we will not die again that is powerful, where we will be changed and transformed and we will be like our Savior, the one who was risen from dead, never to die again. The first fruits from the dead. Glory to God. First Peter chapter 1, from verse 3 to 4. I hope you're learning something. Yeah. This is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. First Peter chapter 1, from verse 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. The word and the term begotten us again it simply means born again. We were born again. Unto a living hope, a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our, our hope is predicated upon the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, verse 4, So an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that faded not away, reserved in heaven for you. And I can read 1 Thessalonians 5. You can read this as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, I beg your pardon, verse 13. That says, those who are dead you know, in Christ, who are asleep in Christ, will rise first. And we which are alive will meet them in the sky. And we will be changed and we will be like Christ. The point is this. There will be a time where this body 
full, that can experience pain and sadness and sorrow and depression and sickness and disease and calamity, all of that will be done away with. Where death will be swallowed up in victory, where we will take on an incorruptible, immortal form and live forever with the one who rams, ransomed us with his blood. That's what I'm talking about. A day when the Lord will return and save us from this world of sin and death. Praise the name of Jesus. So you see the steps. There's initially saved, there's gradually saved, there's infinitely saved. All of these are part of the salvation package. So package. A lot of people start with the initially and jump to the infinitely. And they don't realize that there's a, an evident, observable process called sanctification by which you can know truly that someone is truly saved. Do you understand what I'm saying now? Do you really get this? I hope you do. You get it now. And I've noticed that in talks and conversations like this, a lot of people go to the extreme. When we talk about assurance of salvation, and we say blessed assurance, which is what we have, by the way, I believe to God that what we have is not a blessed probability or a blessed happenstance. It's a blessed assurance. It's a hymn that we have. It's because it's a blessed assurance. You can be assured. God doesn't want you thinking or babbling or confused whether you, would, you are truly a citizen of heaven. He wants you to rest assured that he has you. But people wrestle with this and they go to the other extreme. People say, this, this talk of eternal security, you people, I don't understand you. Every time eternal security, you can do whatever you want because of grace. Just do as you like, do as you like. It is wrong. And they go to the other extreme and say, you cannot really know for sure. You have to just live your life, a good life. You know, you can just live a life and, and be sober-minded and vigilant. And yes, they have a point. But you cannot solve one extreme with another. We are not trying to preach a licentious, reckless grace. As much as love is reckless, we are not using grace recklessly. Do you understand? It's not a point to say, oh, we can do whatever we like. And sin, even if sin abounds, grace will abound much more. That's not it. You know, Paul debuts that and says, you know, God forbid, how are we, who are dead to sin, you know, how can we live any longer to it? So let me just correct that. For those who are saying there's no such thing as eternal security, you cannot have eternal security. Let me show you something. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 9. Even just outside the faith, even people of other religions say that you cannot truly be sure it's by the mercies of God that you can only know. And truly, it's by the mercies of God, but there's an assurance in the mercies of God. If we can bank that his mercies are new every morning, there's some assurance, don't you think? That you would meet that mercy again the next morning and the next morning. There's some security there. Look at Hebrews 5 verse 9. This is powerful. <laughs> there's nothing like eternal salvation. That's what they say. There's nothing like eternal security. Look at this. And being made perfect, he became what? Jesus, the source of eternal what? <laughs> Salvation to all who obey him. Clear as day. The Bible tells us. He's the source of what? Eternal salvation. The things and the gifts that God gives are eternal. He gives eternal life. Eternal salvation. Eternal inheritance. Eternal bodies. Look at that. Powerful stuff. Let me give you some more assurance. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 7 to 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 79. This is unpopular, but let me show you. It says, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also what? Keep you firm till the end. Look at that. 
oh, this is powerful. This Lord who has called you, he's, he's not just watching as a spectator on his live TV screen in the heavens with the angels beside him. <laughs> Let's see what they will do. He's not just a, a chess master putting us as pawns in his own master game and master plan. No, he's actively keeping, preserving, walking with us. What a God. He said he will also keep you firm till the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Say, God is faithful to me. Put your name there. God is faithful to Kenneth. Ha! He will keep me firm till the end. Say that. God is faithful to keep me firm to the end. Hallelujah. He says, who has called you into fellowship with his son? So he called you and then he keeps you. This is God. This is God. This is God. And it, you think that is the best that, you, that, that can ever be about this. Look at the, this verse. Jude verse 24. Jude chapter 1 from verse 24. This is powerful. This is powerful. Hayata. Baruku tomande seteki. Jabane kuru tomas. Hey, this is powerful. So yes, he, he called you. He keeps you. Look at this. This one. It says, now unto him that is able to what? Keep you. We know that. We saw that already. He's able to keep you from falling. He's able to preserve you from falling. But he's also going to do what? Present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Look at that. Imagine you are, the, the illustration that comes to mind is that you're writing an exam. And the invigilator is there. And he sees you writing the exam. And he's like, hmm, okay. You know what? Shifts. Shift. Imagine this happens actually. That'd be so cool. I would love that. It just says shift, shift, shift. Oh yeah, number one, eh? A, B, B, C. Yeah, shade, shade, shade. And he's giving you expo. Then you finish the work. He's there guiding you. You finish the work. And then he helps you to present your paper faultless to him who will mark the script. That is God. Look at that. He's the one who will keep you and then still presents you to him. This is powerful. There's assurance here, guys. God is able to keep. And Philippians 1, 6, 7 says, God who started this work is able to bring it to fulfillment, to completion. That is the God you serve. He's a faithful God. You know, when I even think about the concept of rapture, when I think about the concept of rapture, <coughs> you know, a lot of people are afraid of it. And this is one reason where this is one case where a terminology that we come up with sometimes can be misconstrued. And I, 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 I hope that these people who put out these films or those books or comic books about the rapture and present a false ideology about it, I hope they repent. I truly hope. They've deceived many people. And many of us will just say, ah, it's just error. It's just some belief system. It's, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. I grew up watching rapture movies. In fact, some of the scariest ones. Don't ever watch... This is an instruction from the Lord. <laughs> Don't ever watch a rapture movie that was produced by a, 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 a local Nigerian make, filmmaker. Except maybe it's someone who has sound theology. Don't try it. And it's the ones back in my day. Jesus is Lord. The things I saw. It's gory. It's always disastrous. And of course, there is a time coming where there will be judgment meted out to the world. But not that the rapture happens and people are wondering, ah, 
what happened? Is it an alien abduction? People are investigating. They're checking what could have happened. Is it that there was some quantum physics that happened and people, you know, you know, quantum mania in Ant-Man's world, people were just disappearing? People, you can't do that. The Bible tells us that when the Lord returns, everybody will see him. And truly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Sadly, for some, it will be too late. It will be too late, but everybody will bow. They will know that Jesus is Lord. They will see him. There will be no question as to what has happened. They will see him, everybody. He will come in the multitude and legions of his angels to take the people of the world from the four corners of the earth and will be taken up in, with him in glory. Glory to Jesus. And guess what? Just like a father goes to school and does not go to school and say, hmm, Junior, you've messed up. You're a bad child. You're a naughty boy. Tibi, I told you to pack your, your, your lunchbox. Stay there, stay there, and goes home. Imagine the father drives home, leaves the, ch the child in school to closing of, of day. I'll be a terrible father, but parents will not do that. At least I hope not. <laughs> if you go to school, you're going with the intention of taking your child home. When God is coming, he's, he's not confused about who he's coming for. And you must not be confused, too. He's coming for you. Oh, you don't sound like you believe it. He's coming for me. Oh, Jesus is coming back for you. It's you he died for. So when you think about rapture, in fact, from the, from the dictionary definition of rapture, let me see if I have that definition here. The Oxford English Dictionary says this, that rapture is a feeling of intense pleasure or joy. This is very foreign to the idea of what the, the media projects, especially the Left Behind series. I'll call them out. The Left Behind series are, are, not, are not biblical. They are not. They're entertaining, but they're not biblical. It's a feeling of intense pleasure and joy. Rapture, rapture. When you hear rapture, it, it's supposed to inspire the opposite reaction and feeling in your heart that God is coming from, for me. Maranatha, I can't wait. That you are ridden with earnest expectation. For the manifestation of the sons of God. That's what God wants for you. You have a healthy Christian life when the word rapture gives you joy. It really fulfills the purpose for which it was named. That's when you have a healthy relationship with your destiny. Praise the name of Jesus. And I've given you a couple of scriptures. I've given you that. And the place I talked about, you know, Philippians 3 that says we have our, our citizenship is of heaven. Right? A couple of scriptures. Um... And I'm going to show you some other ones. But here's the thing. This, this thing sounds all well and good. This is the crux of the message. So if you've missed out so far, I want you to pay attention now. This is where we get to answer this question. Now, we've seen the assurances of salvation. We've seen that God is faithful to keep. We've seen that there's eternal security to those who truly believe. We've seen that if you are truly saved, an evidence and a true sign is that you, you will be sanctified. Let me show you this. When you look at scriptures, then why do we see so many warnings in the Bible? There's so many warnings in the Bible. So many warnings about do not draw back. Do not be like those, Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not be like this. Do not be like those in the wilderness. Do not be like that. Warnings upon warnings, upon instructions, upon instructions, upon commandments, upon commandments. And like, is this not the new covenant? Why are there still commandments? Because the point of the new covenant was not to take away the commandments, but to give you the ability to actually fulfill those commandments. That is the point. When you look at Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27, as I promised, we'll read again. 
The point is this. Look at verse 27. Focus on it. He says, I will put my spirit within you, yes? And then cause you, cause you. You did not have this privilege before the spirit came. Those in the old covenant can testify to this. They tried and tried, but they failed woefully. They failed every time. They had the laws, but they did not have the capacity to fulfill. It says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then you will keep my judgments, keep my statutes, keep my commandments and do them. That is the point of the enabling spirit within you to do, to do and obey God's commandments. Before your heart, your heart was hardened. You, had, you wanted nothing to do with God, but now he gave you a soft heart, a teachable heart. Now you can do. Now you can do. Now you can obey God's commandments. That's the point. The commandments are not taken away. Never. But there's ability to do now. Praise the name of Jesus. Say, I have ability to do. I have ability to obey all the commandments of God. By the Spirit of God. Amen. Philippians 2 verse 12 to 13 says this. Very popular scripture. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and what trembling. So work it out. The, the literal meaning of what he's saying is go through your sanctification with a sense of reverence and honor for God. So be sanctified. Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out what you already have. Work out the salvation that is already within. That's very important to note. But look at verse 13. For it is God... Who works in you? <laughs> God works in you. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel. That it is him who causes you to do and obey his statutes. He says it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you will have the desire and then you will do the actions required of you. Powerful stuff. It is God. It is God that does it. So the commandments, as many as they are, and we're going to go through those commandments, those instructions, those warnings, they are there. I believe that the warnings are not there to scare us. I believe they are a tool of preservation for the church. When the apostles mentioned warnings and gave cautions and, and put things in place, telling us, don't do this, don't be like this, is a tool of preservation, not a tool of indignation. Do you understand? a tool of preservation for the church. We need to hear it so that we can now know by those instructions that we can do according to the instructions I've said. I'm going, to I'm going to show you a couple of them. You see a lot of warnings. You see a lot of instructions, and I'm going to go through them. So get ready. This is going to be a marathon. Just, if you can't catch up, just listen and just write the reference. But if you can open your Bible and you're fast, please go ahead with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And these are warnings about, or instructions about continuing. I'm talking about that phase of gradually being saved, the bridge between initially and infinitely. You see all of them. First John 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They proved that they, would have, that they were truly of us. Is that what? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it may be made manifest that none of them were of us. Do you see that? <laughs> it says a proof that you are truly saved is that you will continue. You are looking for how you know you are saved. If you continue, that's how you know. 
If your faith holds on to you as much as you're holding on to faith, you are saved. Or let me say you are being saved. The true test of true conversion is that you continue. And this is one of hell's best kept secrets, as I said earlier. Look at this. 2 Peter chapter 1 from verse 10 to 11. 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. I'll read very quickly. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. He's saying be more diligent to what? To confirm that you've really been elected, you're truly saved. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is Peter telling them, see, be diligent to go and check you, go and check. Think about it, go and check that your calling and election is sure. This is Peter saying it to them, to believers. And he, of course, he beforehand listed some things, things to add, said to your faith, add this, add virtue, add this, add that. He said, if you have these things, you will never fail. But he says this, be diligent to confirm your election. He said, you watch, watch that you are still in the faith. Something similar to this, 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. 2 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Look at that. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you failed to meet the test? Just examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So this is not a careless lifestyle of, ah, I've been saved, that's it. Ooh, let me do what I want. I want to live my life of ungodliness. No, he says, let those who are named of the Lord, you know, according to the Lord, depart from iniquity. Let those who, who are named by the Lord and named and called by God depart from iniquity. That is a proof. It's a proof that your desires have changed. That those who are born of God and you have your seed of, the seed of God deposited in you will not commit and go into a lifestyle of consistent sinning. Look at that. He said, examine yourself too. There is caution here. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Whether you stepped out of line or not. Examine. Peter said just previously, be diligent to confirm your calling and election is sure. Interesting. 1 John chapter 2 from verse 28. 1 John 2, verse 28, look at this. And now, dear children, continue in him. Look at that instruction. Dear children, continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident. Look at this. This is where the confidence comes. When we continue in him. When we hold on to faith. When trials and tribulations come, that you continue and you persevere in your faith to the Lord, even as God is keeping you. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. This, these are instructions. Continue in him. Continue in him. Can you mention someone? Re-echo what John is saying here. And tell someone. Mention their name in the chat section. And say, you know what? Fesahio, continue in him. Bolaji, continue in him. Continue in him. Do that right now. This is a commandment. An instruction. Continue in him. Look at another instruction. Ephesians 5, verse 5 to 6. Ephesians 5, from verse 5 to 6. So many to read through, but I'm almost done. Almost done. For this you know, that no whoremonger, that means someone who is promiscuous, nor unclean person, nor covetous, who is an idolater, 
have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Are you listening? And this is something that, that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians as well, 1 Corinthians 6. Just for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Is these things that you can now say you want to live a lifestyle, being a whoremonger, an idolater, being covetous, being unclean. He says you have no place in God's kingdom. That's not, that's not what heaven is for. He said don't be deceived. People will, will try to deceive you with vain words. Let me even go to 1 Corinthians 6. While we are at it, 1 Corinthians 6. I didn't plan to read this, but let's check it out. Powerful stuff here. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. It says, do you not know, like it's expected of you to know. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is not old covenant teaching, no. This is New Testament. He said, don't you know that unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Why did he add this phrase, do not be deceived? Because people will try to deceive you. The interview I watched, this person was saying, you know, they asked this person who claimed to be a lesbian Christian. And, you know, they said, do you know what sin is? And the person said, yes, that is just doing bad things. He said, can you list some sins? And the person was like, I can't really list any sin. And the person said, do you know that homosexuality is listed as a sin in the Bible? He said, well, I, I mean, that's your God. That's not my God. I'm like, no, you can't. That is in itself idolatry. When you create an image of a God that is convenient and comfortable for you, you cannot. That, even the indignation that Paul was talking about, idolaters, people who make a God that is convenient to their lifestyle. You cannot do that. You cannot be God over your life. Look at these instructions and warnings. 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 1 to 2. I'll read this quickly. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with the hot iron. People will come to deceive you and mislead you from the faith, the belief that you follow. And he's, he's saying this. The Spirit clearly says this. So he's, he's warning you to prevent yourself from such. Anyone who wanders from the faith, and, and now this might not be a case of wandering to reprobation. Thankfully, we can restore people back by the power and Spirit of God who truly believe the gospel in the first place. But truly, people will be deceived. And he's saying, no, be careful of this. Be alert, be vigilant, that you are not deceived by wandering and deceitful, seductive spirits. That's another instruction for us. Look at this. Uh, look at a proof of, let me just show you the scripture. 1 John 2, verse 3 to 4. This is a proof that we truly uh, are saved and we belong to God. It says, no, by this, this 1 John 2, 3 to 4. Now by this, I beg your pardon, we know that we know him. How do we know that we know God? If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Look at that. We read this, Matthew 24. Okay, we've not read this before, but Matthew 24, verse 11 to 13. I still have a couple of more scriptures. Stay with me. We're almost done. Matthew 24, from verse 11 to 13. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. 
And because iniquity shall abound, are you listening? The love of many shall wax cold. Verse 13 now. But he, ah, he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Look, the Bible is not, and God through his prophets and his authors, he is not mistaken when he makes them emphasize the concept of continuing, of enduring, of persevering, even as God gives you the grace to do that. It's not a mistaken, it's not a mistaken concept. It's true. It's for you. It's an encouragement to hold on to the profession of your faith. Hebrews chapter 4. And the book of Hebrews, if you have the time, which you, which you do, you have the time, read through the book of Hebrews. You will see a lot of instructions and warnings. The book of Hebrews alone. And it was targeted to the Hebrew people because they had those tendencies. Look at this. Hebrews 4 verse 1 to 2. They had a history of rebellion. And so the writer is cautioning them. Look at this. Therefore, Hebrews 4, verse 1 to 2, then we'll read verse 12. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, look at that. Look at that. The promise of entering his rest, it stands. It still stands. Let us fear lest, I mean, fear means be cautious, be vigilant, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You get the picture now, verse 12. Sorry, this is, should be verse 11. I beg your pardon. Let me just quickly. I think I made a mix up. Let me see. Yes, exactly. Verse 11. Look at that. Look at verse 11. Hebrews 4:11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And before this, he talks about how the people hardened their hearts, those who were led by Joshua uh, through the wilderness. But he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So that example of disobedience in the wilderness was a, was a symbol for our day now, telling us that, look, there's a rest that we should enter, a promised land, literally, a Sabbath. But he says, you should be diligent. Look at the, the phrase. Be diligent to enter that rest. Similar to what Peter has said. Be diligent to confirm. So there's, there's proactivity when it comes to your salvation. It's a partnership. It's a partnership with God. I know that when you got saved, you had nothing to contribute. But now there are expectations of you. You can, you can contribute to your growth. You can be proactive. You can grow. You can be diligent to ensure that you are still in the faith. Says, lest we fall into the same example of disobedience. Look at that warning. Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 14. I'll read it quickly. Look at this one too. Another warning. Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 14. Then I'll, I'll read the last one. And that one is a very difficult scripture. But it's something. I'll read two others. I beg your pardon. But I want you to, to take note. Hebrews 3, 12, verse, um, 12 to 14. It says, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Look at that. It says, take care. That means, that means beware. Be vigilant. Check. Lest there be any of you, let, let there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Look at how he describes the heart that is unbelieving. Evil. Leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he's warning, these are people who believe, but he's saying, be careful that you don't fall into unbelief. Look at that instruction. This is not a case of, can I lose my salvation? That's not the question. If you were truly saved, you will work out your salvation. That's the point. It's not, a, it's not just a badge you wear, ah, I got saved and this. But yeah, there are evidences when you truly are saved. There are signs that follow. You know, you walk some things. You, 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 but true salvation is an enduring one. It says, exalt one another as long as it's today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original... Look at this. Hey, can we read verse 14 together? Can we read it together? One, two, go. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I don't know what your version says, but my version says, hold our original confidence. You hold it firm to the end. That's when it's fruitful. Look at that. Look at There's intentional action when it comes to your faith. There's a jealousy that comes with it. It's not happenstance. God, do whatever you want. Shall take me home to heaven. There is proactivity in believing and holding on to what you first believed. Look at that. And that's why Paul said to say the same things to you is not tedious for me. It is safe. You need to hear it. This is how you are preserved. It is the doctrine of Christ that preserves you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. That's the point. Hebrews chapter 10. I love Hebrews because it reminds me that he was bruised for our iniquities. Glory to God. Oh, shuffles. Sprinkles, sprinkles. <laughs> Sorry. Hebrews 10 verse 38 to 39. It says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. It's a quotation, I think, from Jeremiah, if I'm not mistaken. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I want to end on this note that as much as the, instruction, the instructions are coming this way, there is a tone with which this writer writes to those who he has cared for and discipled. He says, the righteous one, if you're going to live, you will live only by faith, right? But if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. And look at how the writer of Hebrews concludes in verse 39. But we are not of those. as my confidence to you. Vivifiers in the house, truly born of God. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. And he's talking about the, the Israelites. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have those who have faith. Say we have those who have faith and preserve their souls. You will not shrink back. Oh. In the name of Jesus, you will not shrink back. We will not hear the five years down the line. That, ah, remember those days. Those glory days when this person was in the faith and now look at what they are doing. That will not be you. The power of God will preserve you in the name of Jesus. The power of God will keep you even as, as you believe in him and trust in him. Now Hebrews chapter 6 is a final verse and this is a very controversial verse. You know this verse, right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6. And I know, I know there's more to unwrap about this. But my point is, is something very, very important. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And this is a warning again. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6, if they fall away, 
if they fall away, and people have debated if this was the Israelites, the people who had tasted of it, you know, because of how the chapter starts when it says, not laying again the foundation, this, 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 of, of baptisms and all of that, which the Israelites had access to. So whatever the debate is, just focus on this, right? Look at verse 6. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So it says it's impossible to renew such people who have tasted and decide to depart and, and they decide to move away, right? And, and they fall away, you know, from the faith. It says it's impossible. But look at how the writer ends. And this is also my heart to you. There's an assurance with which I'm speaking to you as much as these instructions have come. Look at verse 9. A lot of people never go to this verse. Verse 9 and verse 10. It says, but beloved. Are you there with me? But beloved, we are confident. I am confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, even though we speak in this manner. Do you see how this is a tool for preservation? That even though I speak in this manner, I have a confidence that you are not going to be of those because I am teaching you these things, because I'm giving you these instructions, and the power of God is preserving you. It's like, I'm convinced of better things concerning you regarding salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unfaithful and unjust. He sees it. He sees it. I am confident. Vivifiers, my dearest, beloved people, those of you who are part of this ministry, look, God will preserve you. This is your year. To be, and this is why we're emphasizing well-roundedness and fruitfulness in the will of God. That's why we're emphasizing it this year. It's, you see why it's important. Because we're not going to leave things to happenstance. We're not going to be asking the ridiculous questions. Once saved, is once saved, always saved. That's not our business. Our business is making sure our election is sure. Our business is enduring in the faith, holding fast to the profession of our faith, and putting all the structures in place to keep us within the confines of our faith, because that's where there's safety. So how do we answer this question as I wrap up? Once saved, always saved. Initially saved, infinitely saved. I think sometimes that once saved, always saved, people use that as a weapon to talk about a silly attempt to live recklessly. You know, but I'm saying this, that while there is an inter internal witness. There, truly, you, let, me, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. That while you are, you believe the gospel and there were signs, you saw a miracle of chain desires, you knew the Holy Spirit lived within because you saw the fruit to you, you even probably walked the gifts of the Spirit. The true children of God, and yes, there's a point where the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, as Romans 8 says. But the true proof at the end of the day is your sanctification process and the day when the Lord returns. That's when we can truly know that initially saved for you was infinitely saved. It's, a, it's more of a personal thing. That if you were initially saved, you truly believed, you will endure. Salvation has a look. Faith has a look. It looks like endurance. It looks like perseverance. That's what I can tell you. That's the best answer to this question. So instead of asking the question, is one saved always saved? This is what I would just say. Once saved... Continue being saved, then you'll be saved. <laughs> if you were once saved and you continue being saved, you will be saved. That is the best way to put it. That's the best way to answer this question. And I'm not going to 
go deeper and give you a yes or no answer because it's not going to help you. And anyone can just take that portion. It's once saved, always saved. Take it, extract it, take it out of context, and use it for something else. But I'm telling you, it's once saved, always saved. If you are once saved and you continue being saved, you will be saved. Can we just pray right now? Can we just pray right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, you're going to pray now and say, Lord, first of all, thank God for your salvation. And if this is you, you know that what you've had is a false conversion. I don't know who you are. You know what you've had is a false conversion. You know you truly don't know Jesus. You've been living on fumes. You've just been playing the parts. You've been acting like someone who looks safe but is not. You've been a hypocrite, a goody two-shoes, but you know deep down in your heart that this is not true salvation. You've not experienced this thing. I want to pray with you right now. And I want to urge you right now to believe in the gospel. The Bible says that you are saved by grace through faith, not of your works. It's not about you trying to dust yourself up and look clean. God is calling you, come, let me clean you because I'm the only one who can do it right. I'm the only one who can clean you. And it's not by water, it's by the blood of my precious son. I will clean you, wash you clean and make you holy and make you righteous. I will confirm my righteousness upon you and take the weight of your sin upon me. That is what God is saying to you. So whether you've, you've messed up in your part, your past, whether you've done ridiculous things that cannot be heard of, I want to invite you again. This is a time to truly believe. I mean sincerely, genuinely believe. Not because your parents are ministers of the gospel or that you are in a church, but that you want to truly believe. This is, this, see, no one is, is looking at you right now. No one, it, this is a decision. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and that God raised him from the dead after three days, and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but be given everlasting life. All you need to do is believe. It's so simple. Sometimes we think that deep things need to be complicated, but the gospel, the reason why it's deep is because it's simple. Believe this with me right now and say this, Father, in the name of Jesus, I acknowledge that I have been a sinner. I acknowledge that I've been in my sin all along. And I realize that I deserve your punishment. I realize that I deserve to go to hell. But Lord, I also realize that your grace abounds to me. I also realize that you love me. I also realize that you saved me by your blood on that cross. Lord, I believe in you. Come on, I want you to say, if this is you, I want you to say with all boldness and confidence, Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you died for me on the cross of Calvary. I believe that you rose up from the grave after three days to forgive me of all my sins. I believe that you called me into your family because of this. And Lord, thank you. I receive your grace. I receive your love. I put my faith in Christ Jesus and in no one else. Hallelujah. That's it. There's rejoicing in heaven if you just did that. Hallelujah. Now I want you to continue and say this with me. Now I am a child of God. I am a son and a daughter of the kingdom. My citizenship is in heaven. Thank you, Lord, because when you return, you're coming back for me. Thank you, Lord, because you are able to keep me from falling even as I await your coming. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed. Amen. If that's you, I celebrate you.
congratulations and and maybe you want to take the next step of bold faith like there's there is much good news in declaring your faith it's nothing to be ashamed about if you just made that decision i want you to just graciously mention it in the chat section so we can follow up get in touch with you and help you grow and help you walk through this sanctification process as we await our lord i i want to congratulate you we love you so much if that was you Please don't be Nicodemus. Just let us know. We love you. We want to be a part of your journey and help you. And the Lord has asked me to pray for some other category of people. Maybe you are the, in a phase where you need restoration. In fact, the very fact that you came here to listen to this sermon was a miracle. Somehow, somewhere you found yourself here. I want to pray with you. Maybe you feel you're even on the urge of going back to that old life. You feel they're about to be overtaken by some sin of some, some fault. I want to release grace over your life right now. If you believe that the power of God can touch you where you are, I want to release grace upon you to help you stay in the faith. And then I'm going to give you an instruction. Are you ready? If this is you, I want you to just be receptive right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for these ones who have, in one way or the other, backslidden who have walked out of the faith and given themselves to their fleshly desires. They've not walked in the spirit. They've walked according to the flesh. But thank you because you are the God who forgives. You are the God who forgives. We have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation of our sins. I declare right now for these ones, for grace to adhere to the faith they once believed. I pray for grace to be released to them, to hold them and keep them in the faith, to strengthen them to believe in you, to strengthen them to continue in fellowship, to strengthen them to continue in devotion. I release grace, grace and more grace upon you now in the name of Jesus. You will not fall away. You will not grow into disobedience. You will not be caught in ungodly living. You will live for God. You will bear fruit in the name of Jesus. You will be zealous once again for good works. I declare this over your life in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I want to give you one instruction. If this is you and you need help, SOS immediately. Talk to someone. If there's someone you know here that you can trust, even if it's me or it's my, my wife or it is any of the leaders at the ministry, your grow leaders, wherever it is, or whoever invited you, SOS, tell them. Let's create a structure to help you in the faith. And Father Lord, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you for these people. Thank you for the life of Vivify Ministries. Thank you for the restoration that is being brought here. Thank you for the clarity and the understanding we are gathering on topics like this. Thank you for the attention we are given to build and rebuild the foundations of our faith because in these foundations we are secure. We are not old school for going back to the basics but we are intentional. We become even more fruitful as we tend to the soil and this plant that is growing in our heart to bear more fruits. Thank you, Father. We love you. And Lord, for the rest of the series on the gospel of your grace, may it be evident to us all that we are required to do and all that we have available for us to run this race. And as we wait for your return, as we cry Maranatha, help us to do two things, to bring as many people into this family of faith and also ourselves, hold fast to the profession of our faith. You'll find a people, when the Son of Man returns, you'll find a people full of faith waiting for you. Thank you, Lord. We wait in, in, in earnest anticipation 
we wait, we wait, we are excited. We rejoice thinking about your return, the lover of our souls coming back for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' mighty, matchless name. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.